Cyprus feeling very third world today, Thursday, March 28th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. New limits on banks in Cyprus have many there seeing red. This kind of stuff goes on in banana republics, not in a European country that's supposed to be in the euro. And the whole point of it was to offer some kind of stability. Also, you think it's a jungle out there? Turns out there are some very friendly plants in the jungle. Plus, a reporter's unlikely meeting with a Congolese warlord nicknamed the Terminator. He was in civilian clothing with a T-shirt saying, peace and reconciliation across his front. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. Rise the World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Good news today, sort of, for bank customers in Cyprus. Their banks reopened, but there are tight restrictions on how much money they can access and, of course, a new tax on accounts with more than 100,000 euros in them. That tax is one of the conditions Cyprus agreed to in order to get a massive European Union bailout. It's also why Cypriot authorities shut down the banks last week to prevent customers from taking all their money out. In a few minutes, we'll get the details about the new post-bailout banking rules in Cyprus. First, though, we want to hear the personal story of just one of those bank customers. His name is Costa Thomas. He's a Cypriot who used to live in Britain and now owns a restaurant in the coastal city of Limassol in Cyprus. Basically, the last two weeks in Cyprus have been absolute hell. You can only use your uh, cash card. And most of the time, there's no cash in the cash machines because everyone's got there before you have. So everyone's scrambling around looking for cash. Uh, my daughter's studying in London, and, uh, you know, I need to send her some cash. So I've come over now, got some money from some friends here in London. It's just a desperate situation, really. It's a real problem. You had to hand-deliver the cash to your daughter in London? Yeah, I had to bring the cash, give it to her so she could pay for her rent and uh, some bills she had and all this kind of stuff. Has your restaurant so, in Limassol been open since the crisis began two weeks well, ago? Well, it's kind of been open and closed because, you know, we've been sending staff home early because there's been some days there's been absolutely nobody coming in. And how are you paying your employees? I mean, if there's not enough money to go around. The good thing is that everyone understands the situation. So there's a sense of camaraderie and understanding between everybody, employers, employees, that somehow... When things improve, if I owe the money, then I'll just have to give it to them at a later stage. But I just simply don't have now access to money to pay them all their wages. So I'm giving them drips and drabs, whatever I can. Mm. Back in 2008, which seems like eons ago before this uh, crisis began, I I gather you sold your fish and chip shop in England to move back to Cyprus. Uh, Why did you decide to move back then? Cyprus had just joined the uh, euro And I always believed that Cyprus being in the euro was going to offer the country great prospects, stability, good governance, all these kind of things that we were all promised were going to be the um, benefits of joining the euro. So we made the move, sold my house in London and uh, bought a smaller house in Cyprus, set up a little business and uh, put the rest of the money in the bank. 
Are um, all your savings in Cypriot All banks? my savings, every single cent of my savings is in Cyprus. Mm. So I don't know which bank it is, but... Uh, like Bank, which is one of the banks that basically were just insured up the 100000 and the rest is all gone. How is this going to affect your own financial future? If this thing carries on and the summer's a bad summer and tourism is low, then really with 100,000 euro, probably have a few months before I have to close the business down and that'll be the end of that. And then all my savings are gone. Your family fled Cyprus in 1974 during the Turkish invasion. Your family left everything behind. I was a nine-year-old boy. We had our businesses and my family were a wealthy family. And one day there was a war and we were living in the north and we had to flee middle of summer. I remember we left with our flip-flops. We left with literally zero. So flash forward to today. What are you feeling? In 1974, we lost everything due to a war. This time, we've lost everything due to the crooks in Brussels. These gang of thieves who have no real idea what they're doing. Two weeks ago, they offered a 10% haircut on everybody's bank accounts. And now it's a 100% haircut. You know, this kind of stuff goes on in banana republics, not in a European country, not in a country that's supposed to be in the euro. And the whole point of it was to offer some kind of stability. Um, I wish I had something encouraging to say other than good luck, but uh, thank you very much for telling us about your situation. Thank you, buddy. That was Costa Thomas, a restaurant owner from Limassol, Cyprus. You heard his anger at losing a huge chunk of his savings to the EU bailout deal. The numbers are confusing, and how big a tax depositors will have to pay depends on which bank was holding their money when the crisis started. Here's the world's Jerry Haddon with the details on the bank restrictions that went into effect today in Cyprus. If you've got money in a Cypriot bank, here's what you can't do for at least the next week. Take out more than 300 euros a day, or cash a check, or carry more than a grand with you on vacation abroad. If you're a business, you have to limit transactions to 5,000 euros a day. More than that, and your request goes before a special committee. Without these restrictions, Cypriot banks would likely have been fleeced today, because on Monday, the government announced that it would apply a one-off tax of up to 40% on accounts of more than 100,000 euros. This afternoon, the new withdrawal limits helped keep lines at Cypriot banks relatively short. These folks waited in front of Leike Bank, one of the biggest. Everybody suffered some money in Leike Bank, and they waited to take the minimum that they give us a chance. Everybody's come to take the minimum, not have any other choice. But we, don't, we are not in panic. We think that everything's going to be okay. I'm not so sure. I think wars are coming. Why? I live in Greece, and I know what is going to happen next. Then it's taxes in houses, in apartments, in everywhere. So things will be worse soon. What's happening here is disgusting. The very rich are poorer, but the poorer haven't got anything to eat. For God's sake, they haven't shared things out equally. We're not allowed to draw more than 300 euro. Disgusting. For me, I'm okay. But for other people, they're waiting to pay rents, to eat. They have children, they have families. We're in a very, very bad condition. Cyprus needs about $13 billion in rescue money, or the country will go bust. The original bailout deal negotiated with Eurozone partners, led by Germany, had called on Cyprus to tax even small account holders. That was later modified. With the deal now sealed, today the European Central Bank sent a heavily guarded convoy speeding around Cyprus, distributing about $8 billion to banks. Everything about this rescue, the Eurozone's fifth, is different. 
the tax on accounts, the cash flow caps, all in the name of keeping yet another struggling euro user in the club. Although Peter Spiegel of the Financial Times in Brussels says many analysts say, in essence, Cyprus is already out. If you consider that a euro in a Cypriot bank account is different than a euro in an Italian bank account because it can't be moved, is that a separate different currency? Uh, so you're starting to see these, these cracks emerge that we hadn't seen emerge. Spiegel says the calm that set in last summer after Greece's latest round of rescue negotiations is now broken. One sign of that, borrowing costs for struggling euro nations from Spain to Slovenia have risen considerably since the Cyprus drama began. And adding to investor worry, EU officials now say that the Cyprus deal is the new blueprint for future rescues. That means if a country's banks are crashing, account holders can expect their savings to be raided to help pay for the bailout. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon. We have lots more coverage of the bailout crisis in Cyprus, including what's at stake for Russia there. That's at theworld.org. That's also where you'll find a link to Time magazine's profile of one of the bailout's key architects, International Monetary Fund chief Christine Lagarde. She's also a prominent political figure back home in France, and her profile was reported right in the middle of the Cyprus crisis by Time's Paris correspondent Vivian Walt. Vivian, before we go into the details of uh, Christine Lagarde's very busy week working on the bailout, remind us who she is. Well, Christine Lagarde was, until 2011, France's finance minister. And actually, before that, she was a big corporate lawyer in the U.S., and rose to the top of the law firm Baker and McKenzie. So she does not come out of a typical IMF chief background. She's not an economist. She's a lawyer. And more than that, she's the first woman to ever run the IMF. She got the job after Dominic Strauss-Kahn, you might remember, basically blew up his stunning career with one encounter in a New York hotel room almost two years ago. It was under Dominic Strauss-Kahn that the euro crisis really exploded. But Christine Lagarde's tenure at the IMF has basically been dominated by this crisis in Europe now. I mean, it really seems uh, Christine Lagarde's job right now is to travel the world, rallying members of the IMF to this cause, Saving Cyprus. And uh, I guess she's headed to Beijing next month to talk them into helping out. It can't be an easy task. I mean, how's she handling the Cyprus business right now? She has uh, been fairly consumed with it, although you wouldn't know it from actually being around her. She is so cool-headed. However, she's up against an almost impossible situation. She represents 188 countries who all contribute money into the IMF, or they borrow money from it. And the creditors are increasingly wondering, what on earth are we doing bailing out Europe every single year? Is it simply throwing good money after bad? Just to put a clearer point on what she's been doing during the Cyprus crisis, I mean, maybe you can just describe for us what it was like seeing her juggle the phones and kind of making these deals to save this little Mediterranean island. Well, here we have an island of a million people. Its economy is the size of Boise, Idaho, basically. It should be nothing more than a rounding error in the EU's enormous economy. However, because it uses the euro, Christine Lagarde fears that it absolutely cannot leave the eurozone or it will put every other eurozone country in jeopardy. So she spent many, many days juggling the phone, talking to Tokyo, talking to Washington, talking to European leaders. Within the 10 days that I saw her in action, 
She was in Paris, Brussels, Frankfurt, Washington, and then back to Brussels again, trying to piece together a deal, the first round of which went horribly wrong, and the second round of which she actually managed to push through what she wanted. Christine Lagarde, we have to say, is a striking 57-year-old, silver-haired, always tan, uh, but need to mention, too, that she's also tarnished. She's being investigated for a role in a $367 million government compensation package uh, to a businessman. And the French police came after her recently, right? Indeed. I mean, they raided her apartment, actually, the day that I was with her in Frankfurt. They've been going after every single figure in this case. This might be one of these moments in which the fact that she was from the corporate world and not the political world might show itself. You know, there's lots of speculation that Christine Lagarde could be France's first woman president someday. But if she ever runs, uh, could these shaky years at the IMF determine the outcome? I'm not too sure, actually, because in the midst of this crisis, you have had a poll actually just a few weeks ago about who the most popular women in France were. And she came out far and away number one, as she often does. She's extremely distinctive. She's made mm. it to the very top of a profession that is absolutely overwhelmingly male. And she certainly exudes a kind of confidence which uh, women seem to take a lot of inspiration from. She's seen as somebody who's really kind of a global figure, who makes France look good. She knows everybody on first name terms around the world. She speaks almost perfect English. So if there are things which would stop her from going for the presidency, it might be this legal process hanging over her head rather than the euro crisis, which she's come out rather well from. Time Magazine's Paris correspondent, Vivian Walt. Always good to talk with you, Vivian. Thank you. You're welcome. Here's a quick update on a story we ran yesterday about growing concern over the impact of some pesticides on bees. Bees are crucial pollinators for much of the world's food supply, and even low doses of these pesticides, called neonicotinoids, have been linked to a sharp decline in bee reproduction. Well, a new study has found that the pesticides appear to make bees forget the smell of food. The study appears in the journal Nature Communications. We've got more on the story at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. This week, one of Central Africa's most notorious warlords appeared before the International Criminal Court for the first time. Bosco Intaganda, also known as the Terminator, is facing charges of war crimes and crimes against humanity. He's accused of murder, rape, and recruiting child soldiers during some of the bloodiest fighting in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Intaganda, who was indicted years ago, surprised authorities by turning himself into the U.S. Embassy in his native Rwanda last week. Katrina Manson is the Financial Times East Africa correspondent, and she was one of the last international journalists to have met Bosco Intaganda when he was still free. Katrina joins us now from Nairobi. Um, tell us about how and when you met this man, Katrina. Uh, what was the setting and what was he like in person? What was interesting when I met him was that he, he was in civilian clothing with a T-shirt saying, 
peace and reconciliation across his front. And we we shared a thermos of tea, which is something I hadn't been expecting. Mm. He was in a black cowboy hat and, and veering between Swahili, English and French. So we sort of cobbled our way through the interview. We sipped tea as, as the rain came down about us and talked about his role within the Congolese army because although he was indicted in 2006, he actually continued in his role as a rebel and then was integrated into the army. And it was this moment that for the first time he came out on record and said that he was number two in a UN-backed operation. Wow. Well, I mean, how does an indicted war criminal, how, how is he able to negotiate his way around into the Congolese army uh, and keep uh, UN peacekeepers quiet on his side? I mean, does he have friends in high places? Well, he might have friends in high places, but he might also have uh, friends in low places, as it were, because his main concern when we met was that his troops absolutely loved him. And of course, that kind of loyalty from rebels means that you're on a very delicate tightrope, because if they choose to rebel again, then the kind of violence that you saw in Congo is reignited. Now, last week, we learned that Bosco Ntaganda turned himself in the U.S. embassy in Kigali. What has he allegedly done? Ah, well, since the mid-90s, he's been fighting since he was something like 17. He was with the Rwandans throughout the genocide on the Tutsi side. And he then joined Rwandan-backed groups in Congo. And Bosco Ntaganda is accused of recruiting child soldiers under the age of 15. Subsequently, more uh, charges have been unveiled, including rape, sexual slavery and murder. And in one uh, very gruesome event, a massacre in 2008, where 150 people or so were killed. Explain his connection, if you would, to UN peacekeeping troops in Congo. They always distance themselves from Bosco Ntaganda. But you found evidence that the UN was actually working with him. Well, it was all very awkward because, of course, you've got somebody who was indicted in 2006. Now, when I met him in 2010, as well as being with his troops, there was anecdotal evidence of him playing tennis with diplomats who didn't know recognize him, but certainly diplomats who dined in the same restaurants as him and either leaving or having to avert their eyes. Now, that's because no one was prepared to arrest him despite the arrest warrant. Uh, neither Congo nor the UN didn't, said it didn't have a mandate to, but it continued to avert its eyes. Katrina Manson is the Financial Times East Africa correspondent. You know the expression when you want to say that the world is cold and heartless? It's a jungle out there. Well, it turns out a literal jungle may not be so uncaring after all. Some of those plants could actually be looking out for one another. At least that's what some Canadian scientists may have found. Anna Rothschild of our partner program Nova has a story. Biologist Susan Dudley steps inside the greenhouse at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. It is nice and warm in here. She walks me through the tropical room, a place that teems with life. We have banana trees. And competition. Palm trees. Leaves, pods, and technicolor flowers sprout in all directions, fighting for the light. So our view of nature is sometimes that nature is kind of red in tooth and claw, that every organism is out for itself. That's certainly what most of us learned in biology class, but in Dudley's lab, she's proving that there's a softer side to nature. She's found that even plants can embrace family values. You see, Dudley and her students have shown that plants can recognize their siblings and give them preferential treatment. Several years back, they tested a hypothesis. 
that plants from the same mother would compete less for valuable resources like root space in the soil than plants that were strangers. And to kind of our amazement, we found exactly what we predicted. In other words, the plants seemed to act altruistically toward their relatives. Dudley's graduate student, Amanda File, explains that the plants aren't exactly being nice. This altruism is most likely a strategy to increase the odds that a plant will pass on its genes. Because if your relative does better, then your relative's genes are passed on and you share some of those genes. The thing is, the altruistic behavior they saw in the first study was pretty passive. The plants weren't working together, they just weren't being aggressive toward their siblings. So the scientists wondered, was there a situation in which sibling plants would actually cooperate? To find the answer, file turned to ragweed. Many of us are allergic to it, and it's not very nice to touch because it's very hairy and kind of yucky. But she chose it because, like about 80% of land plants, ragweed forms a partnership with something called mycorrhizal fungi. These are networks of fungi that live in the soil and associate with the roots of many neighboring plants. Dudley says a plant will provide sugars to the fungus to help it grow. In return, the fungus gives the plant nutrients, water, and in some cases, protection from pathogens. For a plant to have this fungus associated with the roots kind of gives them super roots. But there's a catch. Since multiple plants work together to grow the fungus, there's an incentive to cheat. A plant could donate no sugar, which is a costly resource, but still receive nutrients from the fungus. Dudley and File wondered if plants would be less likely to cheat and, in fact, be more generous in the presence of siblings. In a recent study, they grew pots of siblings and pots of unrelated plants, and they found that the plants that were related did, in fact, work together to promote the growth of the helpful fungus. And in turn, that seemed to benefit the plants. Dudley says the siblings grown together were healthier overall. So this is kind of our first bit of evidence that not only do plants change their behavior in the presence of siblings, but that they may benefit from the presence of siblings. Other labs have made similar findings. Still, this is a new and provocative idea, and there are lots of questions left to answer. For example, how do plants even know who their siblings are? Scientists think it has something to do with chemicals emitted by roots, but it's not clear what those chemicals are or how plants sense them. For Amanda File, this is an exciting new frontier in plant biology. Personally, the more that I know about plant behavior, the more I love what I do because there's just so many cool questions to ask. So what's next on her list? Well, right now, she's studying maternal care in trees. She's looking at a species of tropical oak in Taiwan. She wants to find out if mama trees take better care of their own babies than they do the saplings of others. For Nova and the World, I'm Anna Rothschild, Hamilton, Ontario. Starting next week, our partnership with Nova takes you to Australia. Throughout April, we'll have stories from the island continent exploring its current environment and ancient past. And tune into PBS for the Nova series, Australia's First Four Billion Years. It begins April 10th. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI. Today's story, reported in conjunction with NOVA, was made possible by the Candida Fund. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, many school kids in Quebec are required to speak French. 
That inspired one contrary Montrealer to start telling jokes in English. As soon as you're not allowed as a kid, you want to do it. You know, I guess I guess that's what becomes an adult as well. You know, whenever people tell you you can't do a bilingual show, I always feel like, well, why not? PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Imagine going about your normal daily business in a war zone. That's what Syrians all over their country are doing every day. And a reminder today of just how that daily gamble can turn deadly. There are reports out of Syria of mortar fire hitting a cafeteria at the University of Damascus. At least 15 people, students, were reported to be killed. The government blames rebel forces, which have increasingly been using mortars in their fight against the Assad regime. It was the latest evidence that Syria's two-year-old civil war is engulfing the country's capital. Activist Amr al-Sadak is based in Damascus. You live in the northeastern Damascus neighborhood of Barzeh, Amr. Tell us what it's like there right now. We've heard in recent weeks your neighbors have been fleeing. The biggest part of my neighborhood, Barzeh, is now officially under siege. As for now, the part that is surrounded by the regime and mainly also by the Shabiha, who are the militia armed by the regime, the biggest part who is under siege only has... Very few families and a number of young people, FSA fighters, some activists and some social journalists only. No cars can come in or come out. Even no families can leave now because the snipers are targeting almost everybody who moves on the main streets. Of course, ironically, the electricity is still coming like every other place in Damascus, only a few cuts over the day. We're not sure what's the raging strategy of bringing electricity while cutting everything else, including communication and GSM networks. Most of the families that could leave before left, only a few who couldn't are still staying in, waiting for the big thing to happen, and also fearing the worst that the regime might start shelling the area heavily like last time. So are families going without food then? Activists within the Humanitarian Aid Office, which is a local organization that receives aid from expatriates outside, are working on a public meal every day, something very basic for people to live in. Other than that, everybody is living on what he has or what he can bring through the unorthodox way that is being used by the activists to bring very limited amount of food into the area. So when you're talking about the Shabiha, you're talking about Bashar al-Assad's elite special forces, is that right? Um, not exactly. Shabiha are civilians. Most of them are relatives of people who are enlisted in the army or the security forces, but they are all civilians in most most of the times they are led by officials mainly from the army or the security forces and Amr, let's remind uh, our, our listeners you're an activist but are are you an activist for either uh, side in this conflict the regime or the rebels or are you more of a peace activist i'm not an armed uh, activist I'm, I'm not i'm not member of the frisian army and i have never carried weapons my main role was with the media and all human rights of course, I'm part of the opposition, but like I said, I'm, I'm not part of the FSA or any armed group for that matter. Two or three weeks ago, there was a big flurry of activity uh, in support of the rebels after Secretary of State John Kerry announced there would be some financial support and other soft support for the opposition. What are your expectations from the West, from Washington specifically right now? 
Well, the West and particularly the United States have been supporting. That's a fact that cannot be denied. Regardless of the visibility of that on the inside of Syria, I am aware that many refugees outside Syria are receiving such support through international community organizations. Now, what the support that the Syrian people are looking for is something that should result in a short term with the removal of the regime in a way that doesn't affect the stability of Syria worse than it has been affected so far. What everybody here is in fear of is that the international community is paying money but is not paying or doing enough to make Syrians get this done with. Activist Amr al-Sadak works with the Syrian Revolution Coordinators Union in Damascus. He's been speaking with us from the Syrian capital. Amr, thank you. Thank you, Margaret. Washington Post columnist David Ignatius has traveled in Syria with rebel fighters, and he says he's in daily contact with some of them. Ignatius thinks a critical phase of the battle for Syria's capital has just begun. This week, we've had some major actions, attacks on the airport, shooting down of a plane landing. I was just told a few minutes ago, closure of some of the regime's access points to the south, and the key city of Dara. So we're really, I think, now entering the decisive phase of this military conflict, which is the battle for, for Damascus itself. And the tide may be turning, but isn't the opposition so fractured that a turning tide doesn't really mean that much? The problem in Syria is very similar, really, to the problem that we experienced in Iraq, which is the, the problem of what happens the day after. The opposition movement that will topple Bashar al-Assad is fragmented. It has many different strands. Those different uh, parts of the opposition are funded by different rival Arab countries. The United States has some contact with some of the groups but has been unable to form a unified, coherent command structure that could have made for a smoother transition. I mean, Secretary Kerry a few weeks ago made a promise to bring more support to the rebels. But given the divisions, does Washington know where to actually deliver that aid? Let me give you an example of how difficult this proves to be in practice. The United States responded to a request from the commander of the Free Syrian Army, Brigadier General Salim Idris, by setting up a training program in Jordan. And the idea is to train elite members of the Free Syrian Army who could then go out and train others to create a kind of something like our special operations forces, some highly trained, very skilled fighters who would have better equipment and who could form a kind of nucleus. The problem, it turned out, was that fighters either didn't want to leave the fight in Syria or couldn't make their way to the training area in Jordan. So the impact of this program, which sounds great on paper, has been very limited in practice. So are you saying the Obama administration's commitment to the Syrian opposition is basically just symbolic up to this point? It's a series of ideas that make sense on paper, but that in practice, according to the Syrian contacts I talk to almost every day, uh, in, in practice hasn't had much effect on the ground yet. Let me ask you one more thing about leadership for the opposition. Uh, they've just elected a, a new interim prime minister, a man named Hassan Hito. Is he a known quantity by many people in Washington? 
Ghassan Hito is a somewhat obscure Syrian uh, activist. He's been living in Texas for a long time. He was pushed to the fore with the backing of Turkey and Qatar, two countries that would like to see an Islamist government succeed President Bashar al-Assad. The U.S. would not like to see that outcome. The person the U.S. prefers in the opposition is known as Sheikh Moaz al-Khatib. He's met with Vice President Biden. Mm. Uh, He's been quite outspoken in saying that he's prepared to meet with responsible members of the Syrian government, not Bashar al-Assad, but others, to try to work for uh, an effective transition. But he got so upset at the internecine fighting that was taking place within the opposition that he quit as president of this opposition coalition. He seems sort of to be back now. He's actually taken the seat of Syria in the Arab League at a meeting that was held Wednesday in Doha, Qatar. But this back and forth, the confusion about who's leading the rebel movement illustrates just how complicated, how tangled these politics are. And it's for a reason that people who know the Middle East will be very familiar with. Arab regimes end up subsidizing different warlords. You see this in Lebanon. I I watched this for 30 years in Lebanon. You see this in Libya today. The wealthy countries, Saudi Arabia, Qatar in particular, tend to fight their battles using proxies in these countries. That's happened in Syria. And it's one reason why the future for Syria is going to be so hard to predict because you've got all these uh, different warlords, let's, let's be frank, who have big bags of money and lots of supporters, thanks to their outside sponsors, who are going to be pushing for effective control on the ground if the regime falls. Serial watcher David Ignatius is a columnist for The Washington Post. His latest novel, Blood Money, is set in Pakistan. David, always good to speak. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our forward-thinking GeoQuiz team is already anticipating the next Summer Olympics. They'll take place in Rio de Janeiro in 2016. Rio and Brazil are under a lot of pressure to get all the venues ready in time for the Games and for the Soccer World Cup, which Brazil is due to host in 2014. So it was a bit alarming to learn this week that one of Rio's main stadiums, the one that's supposed to host the Olympic track and field events, was shut down by authorities. Engineers say the stadium's roof has major structural flaws, making it dangerous for the public. Our question for you is, can you name the stadium originally built for the 2007 Pan American Games? You don't have to fix it, mind you, just name it. And while you puzzle on our quiz, we're joined by the BBC South American soccer reporter Tim Vickery. Tim, how big a deal is this that Rio's main Olympic stadium is closed for repairs? It's an extraordinarily big deal because this place will be the centre of global attention in 2016 when Rio hosts the Olympics. I don't think it's fully realised in Brazil where there isn't a great Olympic tradition that the athletics is the soul, the heart and soul of the Olympics. Who's the world's fastest man, woman, who can jump furthest, highest? Mm. These are the things, the track and field events, which will take place in the Estadio Olimpico João Avalanche or the NGL. So it's a, it, it's a huge deal. And it, it really is a massive embarrassment to the Rio local authorities. And it's something which unfortunately hits them in the pocket as well. Right. And very tough in Rio, which is soccer obsessed, that they don't have another major stadium to play in because I gather the other main soccer venue is being refurbished for the World Cup. That's in 2014, yeah? That's right, yes. The the, the Maracanã was built for the 1950 World Cup. It's running 
well over budget, as happened in 2007 with the Stadio Olimpico João Avalanche. Uh, and th- there's a worrying story here for the authorities because the original construction company that were building this stadium pulled out. So a new consortium came in. It's the same company which are building some of the World Cup stadiums. And their condition for taking charge of building this stadium at short notice was that they couldn't be held legally responsible for the work. Now, that means that although we've got a stadium which is falling down after less than six years of life, and the stadium is being closed because in high winds there's a risk of the roof falling off. So although, and this is bizarre, after less than six years of the active life of the stadium, well, I was going to there say, is no I mean, legal protection for the local authorities. Yeah, I mean, for a stadium that was built in 07, uh, it sounds like Brazil picked the wrong contractor. But if the contractor built in this condition, I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. Well, it's such a, an embarrassment for Rio and I think for, for Brazil's government in general. And this is a, a story where the eyes of the world are on Brazil and on Rio as never before. And it's almost, I think, a, a metaphor or a symbol for some of the problems that Brazil is currently facing. As, as it, without doubt, it makes progress economically, but it's sometimes a case of, of steps forward and, and steps back. And Brazil has a number of problems, overvalued currency, perhaps education, no doubt about it. But infrastructure, without doubt, that's the big problem. That's the big Achilles heel. And the problems that we're seeing with this bizarre situation in a relatively new stadium, I think this really highlights some of those problems that Brazil is facing. Tim, I guess you've seen uh, a few soccer matches in the Joao Avalanche Stadium. What's it like being there on a good day? It's a stadium, I have to tell you, which is very unpopular with the, with the supporters. And the Rio clubs have had real problems attracting fans to the stadium. But I've got some happy memories there. I've been there many, many times. I've seen some, some great games and some wonderful goals. I've seen some floodlight failures as well. That's mm-hmm. another problem in, in the stadium. The stadium's had a number of floodlight fa- failures. I've also, my life has been illuminated by the beauty of the women who work in the, in the elevators. They seem to be handpicked for their stunning beauty. And that, that always illuminates my visits to the stadium. But one thing that stands out, I think, perhaps for me is, is taking some colleagues from the Australian media. Uh, and they looked around the place and they said, you can't be telling me that this stadium is only five years old. And uh, in the light of recent developments, that seems like a very acute observation. But they've got great elevator girls. <laughs> yeah. Even that wasn't enough to hide the, the fact that the stadium really should be in far better state of, 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 of maintenance after such a short active life. The BBC's Tim Vickery in Rio de Janeiro with the answer to our geo quiz today. That would be Rio de Janeiro's Joao Avalanche Stadium. Tim, thanks very much. Thank you. My pleasure. We have a follow-up now to our interview yesterday with Washington Post journalist Max Fisher. We spoke with Max about which countries were the most and least welcoming to foreign visitors based on data from a survey conducted by the World Economic Forum. And then we asked you to chime in. We had more than 500 responses online. And from those of you who texted us through our GeoQuiz texting game, you sent us 80 different suggestions for the most welcoming nations, topping the list in popularity, Canada, Ireland, the U.S., and Mexico. Courtney Murray from Washington, D.C. wrote in, Ireland treats everybody like returning diaspora and shows them a fun but educational time in the process. As for which country you thought was the least welcoming, France, definitely the runaway winner. Sorry, France. Karen Edwards from Palo Alto, California, texted us, the French expect all civilized people to speak French and seem annoyed if one doesn't. 
Another response posted by Aaron at theworld.org noted that in my conversation with Max Fisher, he said Egypt was one of the most welcoming countries in his experience. The comment suggested that Egypt may seem welcoming to Fisher because, well, he's a man. Aaron wrote, I know many women who would say something very different about Egypt. She added that most welcoming has a lot to do with gender and ethnicity. But Lori Williams texted from Seattle with a different take. She wrote that in 2007, Egypt welcomed 12 middle-aged women with kindness, humor, and enthusiasm. It was, she noted, one of the greatest trips of her life. And the conversation continues. What do you think? Is a country's welcoming attitude dependent on your gender? Add your thoughts at theworld.org or on our Facebook page. And you can subscribe to our GeoQuiz texting game. Just text GeoQuiz, one word, to 69866. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. And our language editor, Patrick Cox, is here. Patrick, you ever see the world in words, the way language expresses who we are. You've got a real goodie for us today. Yeah, I got a comedian today. His name is Samir Kula. He comes from an Indian family, but he grew up in, in Quebec, in Montreal. He goes by the name of Sugar Sammy. And right now, he's one of Quebec's best-known and best-loved entertainers. I saw in Park X, I saw a fast food Indian place called Curry in a Hurry. That's how creative we're getting to. Right? That's crazy. Like, how fast do you need this food? That food is not meant to be made that fast. If they open up a drive through how's that going to work? Okay, just splash it on me. Come on, just splash it. I'll turn around, sprinkle it on me, man. Put it on the floor, I'll roll around in it. Oh, the meter is running. White guy's laughing. That's racist. <laughs> yeah, he does a lot of that. He's he talking to audience members, and he brings up these pretty edgy issues right. as he does so. Uh, he's very skilled at putting people on edge and kind of reassuring them at the same time, if, if that's possible to do. Mm. Well, I'm laughing, um, but Sugar Sammy is from Quebec. How do the French speakers, the francophones, uh, they're like him? You know, they love him, partly because he speaks fantastic French. He went to a French school. But he also pokes fun at the whole language issue in Quebec, which has returned recently in full force. Remember pasta gate? Right, where the French were not happy that the word pasta was being used. They wanted the French word for that, yeah. Right. Well, here is a great example of how he tweaks that. He's on a, at an awards ceremony on French language TV. He's announcing the nominations for an award together with none other than the premier of Quebec. Uh, her name is Pauline Marois. She's a Quebec nationalist, a strong supporter of, of French language protections. And here he is just getting at her a little bit by speaking English and, and then telling her what that English means. Dans la catégorie spectacle plus populaire de l'année, les nominations sont... And the nominees are... <laughs> Ça veut dire les nominations sont... <laughs> Shut up! Ça veut dire... <laughs> I love it. So the premier of Quebec tells Sugar Sammy to shut up in English and French. Yeah, and that appearance got him a whole load of new fans among Francophones and, of course, Anglophone Quebecers, English speakers. They loved it, too. Sugar Sammy now, he does 
four different types of stand-up. Right now in Montreal, he's doing all four of them, each on consecutive nights. He does a show in French. He does a show in English. He calls that the Illegal English Edition. <laughs> uh, he has a spin-off of the English show called the Indian Edition, and that's mainly English, but there's a little bit of French and Hindi and Punjabi thrown in. And then there's the one that I think he's most proud of, and that's called You're Gonna Rire. Rire being the French for laugh. Um, and it's bilingual, 50-50, French and English. People told him it would never succeed, that he had to pick you know, either French or English, but not both. But it has turned out to be a huge success and with a string of sold-out shows. So I talked with Sugar Sammy. It's in our World in Words podcast this week. And here's just a little bit of the conversation. Here he is talking about how he started entertaining people when he was at school. I'd host all the talent shows at school, and when we'd have school trips, the teachers would let me go to the front of the bus to entertain the kids. I would host those shows in French, but I'd do probably my entertaining in English, you know, whenever I could. I could try to get away with it, just because I went to French school, and it was pretty much the rules that you'd have to do everything in French. But you would constantly want to flip back to English. Mm-hmm. Just because it wasn't allowed, you know. As soon as you're not allowed as a kid, you want to do it, you know. I guess I guess that's who I've become as an adult as well, you know. Whenever people tell you you can't really talk about it or you can't do it in this language or you can't do a bilingual show, I always feel like, well, why not? Well, tell me a little bit about the bilingual show because that was based on people telling you what? You wouldn't be able to sell it out? Well, not just not sell it out, but it would, I couldn't pull it off. You wouldn't be able to pull it off in Montreal because, you know, everybody thinks there are two solitudes. Which, to a certain extent, there are. But well, the, explain two solitudes to uh, our American audience. Well, to an American audience, basically, Quebec is a province inside of Canada. Canada is the country to the north of you. <laughs> and in that province... Well, have, well, that's where the, all the comedians yeah, come exactly. from, right? <laughs> And the two languages, we speak two languages in Quebec. I mean, we officially one language, which is French. But uh, in Montreal in particular, there's a big Anglophone and bilingual constituency. And, and um, it was for years thought that Anglophones don't really watch anything that's French culture and vice versa, which to a certain extent was true. But I knew there was a demographic in Montreal that did consume in both languages. And for years, people thought there's no way. There are TV shows for the French. There are radio stations for the French. There's a star system for the French. And there's the same thing for the English. So there's no way you'll pull it off. And I always thought other people that I know who are like me, who are able to function in both languages and live in French and in English on a daily basis without even thinking about it. So I decided I'd put the show together and try to mix both sides. You mix the French and the English and you get a great hit. It worked. It worked out and I was happy it did. Ça va? Ça va? What's your name, brother? Jean-Sébastien. Jean-Sébastien. You took two names. <laughs> like, I'm going to take two. Jean-Sébastien, what do you do, brother? I love how I asked you in English. You're like, it, I'm going to answer in French. I had a feeling that there were plenty of people who wanted to, you know, hang out in the same room with people from the other side of the tracks and, and enjoy something for once. You speak to me in English, I answer you in French. I don't care which country you're in. Gets to Florida, like, hello, sir. Why? What's your business here, man? Je viens ici de faire des vacances. What the hell is this guy talking about? It was fun. It became a party of different cultures and different languages coming together. Yeah, absolutely. And the idea that it should be done across the two 
linguistic solitudes is quite meaningful, especially at a time when the tension, language tensions have risen again in, in recent months. Yeah. I mean, the best thing you could do is make fun of it. You know, the, the whole Pastigate thing has taken it to another level internationally for us as well. You know, we were on CNN, we were on BBC, and people were talking about Pastigate, and I, and, I, and I wasn't too sure how we were seen. So I thought I might as well, you know, make a couple of jokes. I had a tweet about it the other day as well where I said, listen, I'm at a restaurant in downtown. Does anybody know the French word for macaroni? It's macaroni, you know. I think it's almost like the elephant in the room. You've got to talk about it as soon as you can because as soon as you do, you liberate everybody else. You just want that, that freedom of, of laughing about the things that bother us, you know, that's, that, that are eating at us. I think that's therapeutic for all of us, you know, including the comedian. I feel like if you can make people laugh about it, then, you know, it's sort of therapy for you as well. Samir Kular, a.k.a. Sugar Sammy, he is the hardest-working polyglot in show business. You can hear much more of that conversation with our language editor, Patrick Cox, in the latest World in Words podcast at theworld.org. And Patrick, uh, Sugar Sammy's played outside Canada. Oh, yeah. He's played here in the United States. He's had some very choice things to say about Americans. And he's also just back from a series of performances in India, which apparently went down very well. We'll post a video at theworld.org of his time there. All right. Patrick Cox, thanks a lot. You're very welcome, Marco. And that's our program today from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.